2: You are listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast brought to you by Green and Blacks. Wildly, deliciously, organic. Chocolate to savour. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I hope you're all feeling rested and had a lovely Christmas, whatever way you celebrated, whether you bothered with the turkey or you didn't. I was in a friend's house myself eating goose. And let me tell you, I was delighted not to have to be in charge of that particular meal. I'm going to try and keep the Christmassy mood going as long as possible, well into January anyway. I'm definitely keeping the lights up longer and even though the tree is starting to look a little bit weary, that's going to be staying all lit up in the sitting room as long as possible too. Now, this episode is our annual look back at the podcast at our best bits. And it's always a great thing to do. And remember some of the wonderful people we've had on. And as you know, we were nominated for Best Podcast in the Journalism Award. So we hope we've been doing something right. And we hope we've brought you some distraction and also some valuable content regarding the pandemic. And obviously this year we had an awful lot to talk about. We tried to make sure in these best bits that we put in enough non-pandemic related content too because I think we all need a bit of a break from that. So we've clips from our Normal People episode, our Black Lives Matter piece, and that excellent interview that Cathy Sheridan did with Jenny Murray about her book, Fat Cow, Fat Chance. But of course, inevitably, there is a lot of pandemic in there too. And the first clip I want to play for you is our interview with Sinead O'Connor early in lockdown. So this was her on the subject of always being outspoken, but not always being respected for it. I asked her if it makes her happy that people now appreciate the brave stands she has taken in the past, like ripping up the picture of the Pope and speaking about abortion. So here she is, Sinead O'Connor.
3: It never mattered to me if they didn't, because the way I feel is, art, an artist's job is to. I mean, when I grew up, we learned history, and how we learned about 1916 was they spent the first year teaching us about the poets and the playwrights and all. That. And you, what you learned was the power of art, and what I mean, there were riots in the streets over over plays. In Ireland, you know, and and so there should be, you know, so like what we learned was an artist is somebody who creates conversation where conversation is needed and gets the fuck out of the way quick because, you know, it's none of my business what anyone thinks of me. You understand? And even if you get people angry, that's good. They're up out of their chairs and they're, they're talking about it better to be angrily talking about it then not at all you know so it never bothered me really but I did shed a little tear um over the time magazine thing you know that that was very nice because you know I don't mind at all but definitely I got blacklisted career-wise and I don't mind because that turned me into a great live performer because um, I had to make my money that way. But I've been shitting in alleys and pissing in alleys on tour ever since. And that's fine. But that was the first thing I thought when the time thing came out. I was like, okay, all this pissing in alleys and shitting in bags, it's been worth it, you know. <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah. So, uh, what I really appreciate lately is, since I did the Late Late Show, I guess, with the with the nothing compared to you thing and everything that there's that I appreciate there's such a lot of, a lot of love for me coming back after being a total fucking car crash and there's no reason for anyone to fucking want to contemplate me because I was a crazy bitch and I wasn't always right in everything I said or did I was a crazy bitch. So I really appreciate that people just love music, and they don't really, you know, as as long as you're making music, they're happy. They, you know, they like to see you surviving and getting up. But that's what we do, the Irish people, isn't it? So.
2: That was Sinead O'Connor there. Now we had Dr. Catherine Motherway, a consultant in intensive care medicine at University Hospital Limerick, on a couple of times during the year. But here in this clip from April, she spoke to us about preparing the hospital for the expected surge in COVID cases and how frontline workers are helping families who are unable to be with their seriously ill loved
4: ones. Different hospitals are coping with this in different ways. We are obviously using the phone a lot and we've always used the phone a lot, but we've never delivered bad news over the phone in our entire lives. And now we've had to do that, which is not something we like to do. We are using FaceTime, Skype, Skype, Whatever we can in order to get visual images um, with people, and we are obviously finding that really strange, but it's obviously for their own safety and for the safety of, of everybody that we've done this. And this is sort of a pretty common procedure worldwide.
2: Yeah, the way the way you're talking about it before, if you have to communicate that someone unfortunately has died, you would be saying that face to face with someone.
4: That would be Absolutely. where you'd be doing that, and so you've had to you've and had, you had to touch them.
5: And you shake hands with
4: them. And you might even occasionally hug them. And you can't do that anymore. Like, giving bad news and physical distancing at the same time is not within the nature of the Irish human being. Certainly not with the Irish human being that you're currently talking to. So I would not infrequently hug relatives or shake and always shake hands with them like you normally would when you give them bad news. Just wondering about when people's
2: loved ones die, often what... Is of some comfort or definitely something a part of the grieving process is being with them physically, being with the body, um and they can't do that either. Are you able to in any way help with that through technology or is that out of the question?
4: Well we have offered um we have offered some families, you know, um, you know, video pic- imaging and stuff like that. Now I'm not totally familiar with the actual total um restrictions that have been placed on them in, in the funeral homes, but I believe they're quite significant. I think what we're going to do in our hospital is we're going to create a memory book and we're going to get whoever is with the patient when they died to write out their thoughts, their feelings, and stuff like that. So that maybe, you know, in a, in a better time, that we'll be able to go back to that book with families and say, well, Josephine was with them. This is what they thought at the time. This is what they did. And if they're, you know, if people are religious or they're not religious, maybe they'll have said a prayer if they are. Maybe they'll have read something or maybe they'll have done something. Try and help, and I think that might be of some comfort to people down the line. I hope. So we're going to work on that in in our intensive care unit, and I'd say other units will do various things to try and make some form of memory to the fact that we have had to do end of life differently in Ireland than we traditionally would have done. Um, and we're quite different in the way we deal with that than in other places. We have our own way of doing it, and the way we normally do it has been is now different, and it's going to be quite difficult for people.
2: So grateful to Dr Motherway and everyone in hospitals around the country dealing with such stressful and difficult situations. Now, as we've spoken about a lot on the podcast, 2020 was a year that affected women adversely in many ways, including intimate partner abuse, with people locked down together in dangerous situations. Domestic abuse survivor Bernie Darcy shared her story of the abuse she suffered at the hands of her ex-husband before finally finding the courage to escape the situation with the help of women's aid. And here she reflected on the domestic abuse pandemic and offered advice to women in similar situations.
6: It's literally a lose-lose situation for anybody in an abusive situation being locked in with their abuser, it's making them more accessible to their abuser. I'm thinking about the people that are cut off now because their work, possibly they're not in a work situation where they're um, needed like a nurse or in retail. Like that, um, possibly work like myself, work was the only place you could actually go to, to escape if they don't have their work. Um, because they maybe they've been isolated from friends like I was. Um, maybe they don't have friends to reach out. So mm. what they can do is make calls to women's aid. I myself was um, a caller to women's aid and my first few calls were late at night. And um, I was what you call a silent caller because I didn't have the courage to speak up. And I was also afraid of being heard. Even though he was at the other side of the house fast asleep, I kept on thinking he was going to barge into the kitchen every time I made a call. So I'd hang up and I'd say tomorrow, tomorrow night. But if people don't have um, their work, to be able to get out now um, is next to impossible. Because even to go for a walk, your abuser will say, I'm coming with you. Now, I discovered that my abuser didn't like walking in the woods so I'd actually, I'd actually go to the woods. He had a fear of the woods. That was my only escape. So unless people can find some weakness in their abuser, they're totally locked in with them. Don't take the abuse. Put yourself in a safe room. Lock yourself in the bathroom and ring women's aid. Don't stay. To, it doesn't get better. It gets worse. It escalates. Mine ended up up with marital rape, which didn't get to court because of lack of evidence. But he threatened to kill me at one stage. And I reckon if I hadn't got the courage to walk out, I'd be a statistic today with all the other women that were killed in Ireland through domestic violence. Get out before you're carried out in a body bag. That's my message to people today.
2: Thanks very much to Bernie Darcy for sharing her story. Also in April, Sinn Féin leader Mary Lou MacDonald spoke to us about contracting COVID-19, the impact on her family and exactly how ill she became.
7: I was very upset. I mean, I, I was emotionally upset at the fact that this virus had come into our home. And uh, I suppose then you worry. I like I've got, I've got you know, family and you, you worry about that. But look, I, I, at the end of the day, I, I have understood all along that I got very, very lucky. I mean, I wasn't hospitalized, uh, o- other people. And it's, it's not, by the way, it's not all older people. That's not true. Other people have ended up in ICU and weeks on ventilators and all all of the stress that that and and the peril that that brings. That didn't happen to me. So my overwhelming sense, I I think really throughout it has been lucky. The the one thing is is, is this. I got tested and then I waited for 16 days for a result. So I found that, you know, obviously distressing to be kind of left in the dark is is not a good place to be but actually when i when i reflected on it and when i reflect on it now the, the bigger difficulty was yes the delay in the test but that that has the consequence and the consequence of that is a delay in tracing and that's dangerous you know so in my case uh, those that had to be contact trace were getting a call over three weeks after the fact that they had been in contact with me, that's insane. I mean, that's shambolic. It can't continue. I know there's been some actions taken to correct for that, but you know, the the big announcements have to be matched by what's actually happening on the ground. And certainly, when you get this virus, when you're sick with it, and, and all the rest of it, that that very much is to that's now as in in my in my job now and in my work in my role in society. That's very much to the Can forefront of my mind
2: how bad did it get for you in terms of the illness because i think it affects everyone in different ways and people get different strains have you ever had it felt as sick as that before never and
7: uh it's it's interesting you know the naturally enough the 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 public health advice will you know see temperature you know a cough and and all of that but uh the truth is that for very very many people the 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 sickness is much more complex than that it's not simply the case. So I didn't have runaway raging fevers. I had spikes, but I wasn't, you know. Um, uh, so it, uh, it, it just affected. I, it, it's very hard to even describe what it was like, but it absolutely floored me. And, and, and in answer to your direct question, uh, no, I had never been that sick. And I hope that I will never be. And I hope that every morning that I wake up, just the feeling of gratitude for feeling well just for feeling yourself Mm. and being able to get up and get around and all of this. And listen, I don't want to be on a, on a pity party. Like I'm really, really lucky. I've great health. Like I'm, I'm, I'm an extremely resilient for touch wood uh, person. So uh, do you know when going through the experience, I was very conscious of um, somebody who uh, was not well or somebody, you know, older people and, just, you know, my God, it would be just a devastating thing um, f- for, the, for them to con- contract this. And I don't, know how, I don't know how I got it.
2: Mary Lou MacDonald there. Now, one of the big distractions of this year came with Normal People, which was a real highlight. A great TV adaptation of Sally Rooney's best-selling novel, and it was made by Element Pictures, not long after it aired on BBC, Live lion callers got all hot under the collar over the shocking sex scenes. So we invited journalist Jen Gannon and author Ema to in to share their thoughts on the critically acclaimed TV show. Let's talk about sex, babies. Did you listen to Liveline this week? I mean, I think the whole country, because we're all gagging for something that's not to do with COVID-19, and everyone turned
6: on the radio.
2: It sort of spread like wildfire.
4: Well, I imagined it was like something you would expect to see in a porno movie. Well,
6: Certainly but, not for
4: family view- viewing. What,
6: what would you see in a no. porno movie, Mary?
4: Well, I don't know, because I never Go watched down. one. I just imagined... So,
2: I mean, basically just to tell people who maybe didn't hear about it, uh, this guy, Tommy, went on. Well, first of all, a woman went on. I don't know her name, but then Tommy came on basically giving out about the fornication in normal people and how... It was disgraceful, and had the morals—it showed bad morals in young people. I mean, it was stuff that we, I thought we'd kind of got rid of, or we didn't realise was still there. It's kind of like stuff that you'd hear in the Late Late Show in vintage sort of eighties kind of a time, or seventies.
6: Is, is it the right message? Uh, I wouldn't like a daughter of mine to be engaging in sexual promiscuity before she gets married. You well, know? Where's the where where's Hang on, hang on. You hang don't. on. It's with it's with one person. It's too
8: good. Well, there's, no, there's, no, there's wrong. No. It's
6: it's fornication. Okay. Uh, uh, okay. It's the national broadcast well, promoting uh, uh, fornication. No, it?
1: not. This guy was not
2: happy about normal people. So, Emer, what did you think? Did you listen to the live line?
1: Yeah, I heard bits of it definitely, and I'm sure there's so much chat about it. Um, do you know what? I was surprised I didn't see that coming because, as I said, I had, <laughs> yeah. I had um all of this I think at that stage and I when I first saw the first four episodes I was like people have to warn their mothers that this they cannot sit down and watch this with them like it's not a lovely new drama on RT it's not the clinic like you can't you can't sit down with your mother and it wasn't just like I was like I crudish like is that really clo- close-minded? with me and then I was like no the sex in it is extremely intimate and it's something I think that needs to be enjoyed alone I don't mean that in a dirty sense i <laughs> your reactions to it are too strong you're like I found my emotions were too strong I was like I can't, couldn't watch this with anyone so I was surprised that I didn't predict that live was going to be hopping after the first two episodes aired on RT but I mean how disappointing that there are still I mean I would like to think it was a very small minority of people who were, felt that they could go on the radio and say it was smart. vaccines are beautiful they're so intimate consent is handled so amazingly he is so respectful she's re- like it's just beautiful jen what do
9: you think did you listen to live line i did and the thing i loved about it is i loved that there was young people the youth did as proud because a lot of like young people young girls especially ran up to say hey this is you know your are you totally outmoded opinions are completely redundant because, as Eimear was saying, like the whole conversation around consent is brilliant and so important and done and handled really, really well. And then you had like a dad, they had two dads fighting. The dads were fighting and one of them was saying that he loved it because he sat down with his 17-year-old daughter and watched it with her. And they had conversations, though, about, around consent and stuff, which I thought was amazing. Then he had another dad going, well, I, I want my daughter to play a load of tennis I don't want her to have sex, which was bizarre. Um, fine. But like I loved, I just love the fact that the Irish, the young Irish women especially came to bat for the show and were like flooding lifelines with calls just saying no way. And I love that the depiction of sex is like sex without fear and nasty consequences, without guilt. And that's normal. Like that is your yeah, average experience. Like
2: Emer MacLeisett and Jen Gannon on normal people there. Now, just when you thought we were done talking about normal people, we have another little clip about it for you. Back in June, we were joined by intimacy coordinator Ita O'Brien. She's the woman who choreographed all of those sex scenes on the show. Every glance, touch and kiss between Cunnell and Marianne was expertly choreographed by Ita, who is a master of her craft. But I couldn't go the whole interview without asking her about the national treasure that was Cunnell's Chain.
0: Well, can you believe I hadn't noticed even Connell's chain through all of the months of of performing? <laughs> that is amazing, and I I love that it's taken on this status and life of its own. And I was contemplating it the other day, and I was thinking that it gives it gives a an, an objective. You know, talk about objectification. It gives an object for all of that beautiful outpouring of desire and passion that this story has elicited in people and the fact that it's the story um, you know that the tv series has come out the irony you know the height of our lockdown period where particularly you know I feel very lucky that I'm living here with my family with my partner my two children and my my daughter's girlfriend so I still have that physical contact and that vibrancy in the house but I really feel for people who are living by themselves or perhaps have partners that they're you know not able to be with so I think that's partly why this you know this it was always going to be beautiful but I think the height of of the resonance that it's it's captured with people around the globe is partly because of that and then perhaps just this chain is a personification of of that desire I don't know but I think it's a great thing and it's it's very funny and um and I love it I love it.
2: I, I'm I'm still getting over the fact that it didn't factor in your in your no. um, coaching or coordination at all. That's amazing, because actually, when he was talking to the counsellor in the last episode I watched, the chain is visible there, too. And I think it's about his, um, you know, it's it's the masculinity, femininity and the vulnerability, I think, is what it is. It also brings there's a sexual element, but there's also just a reminder that he is struggling with his feelings and trying to express himself.
0: And the chain kind of personifies that a little bit for me as well. That's all my own stuff. <laughs> there's something about the chain. I think there's something about the consistency, there's constant. You know, if you think that you're watching this character from their you know year 12 at school right the way through until their third year at university, and it's a constant. And I think that, for me, there's something about the constant of his beautiful love from his mother. While the mother is, you know, a single mom, and you know, she she jokes saying, "Oh, she, you know, she, you were my mistake when I was 18," but that constant fundamental love that underpins who he is, you know, so he has his different challenges around how he feels about himself and himself in the world because of his upbringing, but that constant from the mother and how that there's something about, um, yeah. So I I think that's beautiful about that chain that it that it um you know doesn't shift and change to different chains and I like the fact that it's silver it's not gold it's not blinging
2: I do as well I wouldn't like it if it was gold I wouldn't have anything to do with it
0: that was intimacy coach Ita O'Brien there
2: you are listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast brought to you by Green and Blacks wildly deliciously organic discover a different kind of dark Now, as well as the pandemic and normal people, the year 2020 will be remembered for much more. It will be remembered for George Floyd and his final words. I can't breathe as he lay dying, the knee of a Minnesota police officer on his neck. The incomprehensible killing of Floyd, a father of two, shone a light yet again on the pervasive racism experienced by the black community all over the world. The protests in America saw people express collective outrage and solidarity. In Dublin, thousands gathered to do the same, kneeling together in silence and calling for an end to the direct provision system. Three young black Irish women, Amanda Adawale, Toby Lawal and Felicia Olesania, a.k.a. Fellas Speaks, came on the podcast to discuss their experiences of everyday racism, the events in America and the ways in which white people, with all of the privilege we benefit from because of the colour of our skin, can become part of the solution rather than the problem. In this highlight, Toby tells us why it's not good enough to not be racist. We need to be anti-racist.
5: First of all, I think I'll say as human beings, inherently we don't like to think we can do bad or be bad towards others, but we can, we are all capable of being both good and evil. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes when you do tell people that, oh, racism is alive and well in Ireland, they think, oh gosh, as you said, I'm not racist, I can't believe there's people out there that think like that, that say things like that, and there is, and I think you need to remove yourself from the dialogue, first of all, and sit back and think, okay, this person who is Black is telling me that there is racism in this country, how can I, as a person, first of all, educate myself on the topic, and when I say educate yourself, social media is there, you have the news, Um, you can talk to people, you can watch videos. And I almost think sometimes people have that opinion that it's up to you to educate them as a black person. And I kind of find that rhetoric is, not that people are outwardly saying it, but I I have had people say to me, well, you should educate me. And I say, that's not my place. I'm sorry, but you know racism exists. You see what's happening in America. So why do you think I as a black person should sit down and basically almost bring you to my side and explain why you should be angry, why you should speak up, why you should stand up for people, not just black people, people from any religion, race, creed. It's just, I think people do need to, I find people do sometimes place themselves in a narrative of, well, gosh, I would never say something like that. Or I'd never do something like that. Like we know you wouldn't, but it's not about you. It's about other people who are like that. And as they say, a few bad eggs rot a lot. So you need to speak it out. You need to take those people out. It all, all it takes is for you to say, Sean, what did you mean by that comment? Or can you explain, can you explain what you meant by that comment? And I'm telling you now, put a person in that position where you question what they say. Sometimes they won't have a word to say. And I, I honestly think if somebody can feel embarrassment about something like that in that moment, the next time they will think twice before they say something that they know people won't perceive well. But it's when people laugh nervously and look away, tell Mm. you they didn't mean it like that. You're taking it up the wrong way. They didn't mean any harm. That's where the problem is. And you are being complicit. And if you say you're racist, you're not racist. And you're being complicit. I'm sorry. You are. That's just my personal opinion. Like that's the difference between saying you're like, being um anti-racist, you have to actively show that you are with the black community, that you're open, that you're willing to understand, that you're willing to, even though you can't put yourself maybe in that person's shoes, that you can understand the struggle and understand your privilege in the sense that you get up every day, you go out, you don't have to think about whether you're going to get refused from somewhere. You don't have to think about whether when you go to work, you're gonna to have to fight to get a new position. You don't have to think about whether you go to a nightclub and somebody's gonna say something to you about your hair, your colour. Like it's just yeah, I definitely think In Ireland, students, adults, you just need to learn to just speak out, take a stand and not just kind of passively say, oh, well, because I'm not racist, I'm not a problem. That's not really an issue that I need to deal with.
2: That was Toby Lowell there on our Black Lives Matter episode. Now, back in June, during season one of The Big Night In, we were joined by writer, producer and theatre maker, Owen Fuery. Owen spoke about her idyllic childhood in Connemara, about her extensive body of theatre work. And in this clip here, she opened up about her views on marriage and family and why she decided to open her relationship.
10: Well, it's a bit difficult to talk about it right now because, you know, you want to be sensitive and everything like that. But I, I guess, you know, I, I guess certain things happen in certain times of our lives and, um, and we have to, you know, we have to make a decision. And I think love is something you have to honor. Um, you shouldn't walk away from it. Uh, I think uh, it's like a responsibility to the universe in some kind of way. And I think we have to be able to be very honest and be able to sort it out, discuss it, embrace it. Um, and I've been very lucky to, to have um, a partner who has embraced it, not necessarily happily, but, you know, this is how it's been. And, um, and of course, things change all the time and I, I don't really know how what the future is right now. But, um, but I think the other kind of relationships that I find very interesting to analyze and, um, and interrogate is, you know, the whole concept of family and family relationships. Because, I mean, I, I'd be very Marxist in my view in relation to family that, you know, like the, that the idea that the family is a kind of ideological apparatus, um, which is uh, functions to, I've I'm, I'm actually got it written down here. Um, functions to promote values that ensure the reproduction and maintenance of capitalism. The family is described as an ideological apparatus. This means it socializes people to think in a way that justifies inequality and encourages people to accept the capitalist system as fair, natural and unchangeable. One way in which this happens is that there is a hierarchy in most families which teaches children to accept that there will always be someone in authority who they must obey which then mirrors the hierarchy of boss worker in paid employment in later life. I mean, I've got various other things uh, written down there, but um, so, so that's that will be my fundamental feeling that it's a, the kind of core unit of capitalism. And the other thing is what I find quite horrifying in the Irish Constitution is Article 41, where it says the state recognizes the family as the natural, primary and fundamental unit group of society And as a moral institution, possessing inalienable, imprescriptible, whatever that means, rights, antecedent and superior to all positive law. I find that actually quite alarming and a bit frightening.
2: The incredible Owen Freire speaking to us there back in June. Now, in some more non-pandemic related content, back in August, Jenny Murray spoke to Cathy Sheridan about going on her first crazy diet after university. Her mother was disgusted by her weight gain. She went to her doctor and he put her on black bombers, which led to her dramatic weight loss. And a tutor at university noticed the weight loss and intervened. So Jenny spoke to Cathy Sheridan about it on the launch of her book, Fat Cow, Fat Chance.
8: Well, my father was working in Turkey and my mother had stayed with him. So they decided they would come back. They'd drive across Europe and they would take the boat to Hull, uh, from Rotterdam to Hull, because obviously I was at university there. And it's funny, it's very common actually for students to put on quite a lot of weight in their first year. Largely, I think, because they come from home where they've probably had a very good and healthy diet they end up going to the canteen a lot, eating chips and goodness knows what, not very healthy food, buying burgers. I mean, there weren't so, much, so many burgers in my day, but there was a lot of chips. Um, making toast in the student house, going to the bar for the first time and beginning to drink alcohol. So I went from nine and a half to 11 and a half stone. I'm standing there at the ferry terminal. My father drives straight past me, waving like crazy. Eventually he stops, jumps out of the car, comes,
7: hugs me. Oh, lovely to see you.
8: My mother doesn't move from the car. I get in the back. She waits a bit. She turns around and says, oh, God, what's happened to you? You look like a baby elephant. And just rampage about the fact that I was fat and didn't want to come and see my student house, wasn't really interested in coming to see what was going on. She was just furious. My long hair, I suspect she didn't please her too much either. I wanted to look like Kathy McGowan and I just looked like a fat Kathy McGowan. Um, So later that evening, I got a phone call telling me that they had arrived home And my father had been so upset by all the arguments that had gone on that he'd had a little prang with the car on the way home. And clearly that was absolutely my fault for being so awful. So I went straight away to the health centre attached to the university and said to a young doctor there, look, you know, I've put on a lot of weight. I've got to lose it. So he said, okay, well, I can help you. I'll, I'll give you some pills that will help you lose weight. So I happily took the pills, obviously, they were given to me by the doctor. Um, and I went on my first crazy diet, which I'd found in one of the magazines. We're talking 1968, 69 here. And it recommended eating nothing but tomatoes and boiled eggs at every meal. To this day, I cannot eat a boiled egg and a tomato on the same plate I can eat them as separate entities but if I saw them on the same plate I would just be sick I went down to around seven stone at which point my tutor who was a lovely lovely man said look Jenny we have to have a conversation he said you've lost far too much weight your work is not as good as it was you're very up and down what are you on? Um, offended. On, I'm not on anything. I don't take any drugs. I never have. I haven't even smoked a spliff. And he said, No, 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 come on, you're on something. What is it? And I said, Well, only the pills the doctor gave me. He said, Come on, show me what they are. And I had them in my bag, of course, brought them out, showed them to him. And he said, Oh good God, they are black bombers. I didn't know what a black bomber was, so he had to explain. They're amphetamines. They're really powerful amphetamines, which is why I had no appetite. I was crazy emotionally. I was not getting on with my work at all. And I think if it hadn't been for him stepping in when he did, making sure that I was taken into the health centre, they started to feed me again. And then I insisted on doing my exams at the end of term which he didn't really want me to do. He wanted me to go straight home. I did go home for the summer vacation, walked through my mother's door. She said, oh, good God, you've lost far too much weight. But that was always the case with her, you know. Oh, God, you've put on weight. Oh, my goodness, you've lost too much weight. You're too thin. Never, ever, ever did she just say, hello, love, how lovely to see you.
2: From Jenny Murray to Mary Harney, a woman who spoke to us in October when the controversy about sealing the records of mother and baby homes and Magdalene laundries was raging. Mary Harney is a woman now in her 70s who was born in Bessborough Mother and Baby Home in Cork, and she reminded us of the cruelty endured by women and babies in those institutions.
11: The women there were committed to working for the institution, everything, from the laundry of the baby's nappies and clothes and the nun's garments. And um, uh, there was a farm there at Besper at that time, uh, milking the cows. You know, my mother was punished one time by being uh, forced onto her knees to cut the grass with a pair of scissors because she had disobeyed some rule. And the women there were only allowed to see their children at specific times allowed by the nuns. And the nuns could stop that. If they perceived a woman had broken some rule, they could deny the woman access to her child. So imagine, all to all of the audience I'm speaking to, imagine your children being in a metal cot, which at that time was always lead paint and we chewed the bars off it. We chewed the paint because we were hungry all the time. And um, the food was mostly a mixture of um, what we called goody or gruel. It was um, bread and butter mixed with warm milk and sugar um, But we were only fed at specific times of the day. It didn't matter that a baby was hungry or crying for food. The nuns set the rules and the regulations and they had to be obeyed. My mother put herself, uh, volunteered for sluice duty, which was to uh, clean the dirty baby's nappies into sluices because it was close to where the babies were kept so she could... If there was no nuns around, she could look in the door and see me. And so at age two and a half, um, the nuns came to my mother one day and said, Mary is going and get her ready, and I'll be back in a half an hour. So my mother and all the women who were there at the time, remember, this is 1949, 1950s. Now we're going back to 51 or 52. Um had knitted little clothes for me, little jumper and skirts, and you know little things that mothers at that time liked to knit for their babies and um she dressed me in those clothes and a half an hour later, the nun came down and got me and I can remember this walk. people say you can't remember back to two and a half. I can remember the walk because. I was immediately taken at the door of the um, the children's room by a nun. And she held my hand and walked me to the end of the corridor. By that time, my mother had been, the door had been shut on my mother again. So my mother never saw me again. And was not, the whole intention was that these women should not, under McQuaid's rules, should not have any connection with their fallen mothers. So to my mother standing there watching her little two and a half year old, she was never to see me again. Um, I was given, or as court records would prove, taken. And the word taken is emphasized by two elderly people who knew nothing about the care of children.
2: Thanks very much to Mary Harney there. And indeed, the wonderful Maeve O'Rourke who was also on that episode and did so much during that campaign. Now, finally, in November, the week after the US election, we met to take a tentative sigh of relief together as it became clear that Donald Trump was on his way out of the White House. Hooray! And it's not long now before he actually leaves. The amazing, unapologetically rude, feminist Mona Tahawi joined us on Zoom from Canada to give us a bit of a reality check and remind us why we always need to be vigilant when it comes to women's rights. We have Donald Trump to thank for something she said. He said out loud what others only dared to whisper.
12: So when the pandemic began, uh, many of us were trying to look for something positive, but it was really important to understand that positivity can also be toxic. So we have to avoid the temptation, resist the temptation of being cheerful for the sake of being cheerful. Let's, so I'm a tenaciously optimistic person and my tenacity comes from feminism. So this is what I will offer you. I think what Donald Trump did, other than being the useful idiot for the conservatives in the United States and hand them this victory, is that Donald Trump said out loud what many of them would whisper. And he unleashed this out loud conversation that many would whisper. Now we know. You know, we've known, many of us have known for a long time, and now more people know. My way of going forward and my way of holding on to my tenacious optimism is feminism. Feminism is the solution, whether Biden is in office or Trump is in office. And this is a feminism that defines itself not as equality with men. I want something much bigger than equality with men. I want to be free. I want to be free of patriarchy and its fuckery. So my feminism is a robust, unapologetic, incredibly rude, fuck you, you will not get away with this feminism. This is how I am staying tenaciously optimistic, that this is the era of feminism as the biggest opponent to this ascension of patriarchal authoritarians. As the patriarchal authoritarians are becoming more powerful around the world, with the United States now, their unabashed leader, so we too, feminists, must be on the ascendance, And we must look that patriarchy in the eye and we tell that patriarchy, we will fucking destroy you. In that language, nothing nice, nothing polite. I am not a nice feminist because there is nothing nice about patriarchal authoritarianism. So that's how I gain my tenacity and my optimism.
2: So that's it from Mona El and that's it from us for our best bits of 2020. We really hope you enjoyed looking back with us, and that's all we have time for today. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Jennifer Ryan, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. If you want to get in touch with any suggestions or emails, get us on the Women's Podcast at IrishTimes.com and on social media at IT Women's Podcast. We do love hearing from you. Take care of yourselves, and I'll